thank you everyone for joining us uh, today. I realize I'm the last speaker of the day, so a bit of an um, energy moment. Um, you guys have all been sitting here listening and sort of processing what our speakers have said up until this point. And I'm really interested in what you're thinking at this point, you know, particularly around potential ethical risks that you can see with the technologies that you might have seen presented today. So if you'd be brave enough, I'd love you to just raise your hand if you've got some concern with any of the technologies you've seen and you'd like to raise that concern. Yeah. 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 So in this uh, new grey zone environment with military and civilian uh, infrastructure, for example, maybe ambiguous and military objectives might require us to potentially work around civilian infrastructure, there are ethical considerations there. And I've been in two wargaming exercises in the last couple of months, and in both cases, there was um, an area of denial uh, in a civilian urban environment that caused the civilians and the civilian government to be quite upset with the Australian military in this context that was coming into those zones with military objectives. But if you stop people's internet, the civilians get pretty cranky pretty fast in our uh, war gaming. So it's a good comment. Good, excellent. Yeah. You got an example of concern? Well, I'm just looking here saying that I trust that we will put in ethical boundaries around this, but I'm not so certain that other nations say it's going to show example of what you norms. Yeah, I think this is the most common concern that I've ever heard whenever anyone's talking about autonomy AI is they say, what about our adversaries? Suppose Australia behaves ethically according to our values. Does that put us at a disadvantage in against our adversaries who may not share our values and may not hold back from using these means and methods of warfare? Um, my response to that is that ethics has always been a part of war and the challenges of being ethical in war exist now and it will always exist. Um, there's, or, there are adversaries that use suicide bombers. We don't use suicide bombers. Maybe if we did, we could achieve military objectives more quickly because we'd get some advantage from surprise. There's a huge problem for Australia and many countries where our ethics are so clear that our adversaries know how we're going to react and can use our ethics against us. They can use children as human shields because they know our ROEs mean that we're not going to shoot at children. So these uh, potential issues around being ethical are not going to go away. That being said, our global reputation by upholding values is part of our advantage as well. And war is not uh, a simple matter. It is political, it is diplomatic, and it's use of force to achieve uh, political ends. Uh, so part of the potential advantage of robotics and autonomous systems is that our values can be built into these systems and used at high tempo in a way that does accord with our expectations. So we are more precise. We are better at avoiding collateral damage and achieving military objectives with less um, upset in the populations that we're seeking to, um, to, to, to get hearts and minds with. So there is that opportunity, but it has to be negotiated. But great question, it comes up every time. Another question or another concern, ethical concern, yeah. There was an interesting point made at the end of the helicopter flying missile uh, video that said, oh, in the future, mm -hmm. they'll be able, to be able to identify threats in the future, threats before they've even become threats. 
that that is concerning, obviously, who we make that delineation and what is the, the start of the threat or right. the key leader that leads to something like ISIS. Yep. Yeah, it's a little bit of a minority report situation. So one of the impacts from having uh, uh, more systems, more data, uh, is that potentially there can be more power and more control uh, taken away from operators, potentially, uh, or, or given to uh, parts of our infrastructure and environments that uh, removes autonomy or agency from personnel is one issue, or that we're judged about our actions before we've actually made them. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, things to think about. Yeah, good. More? Yeah, up the back. Um, Kate, in my presentation, I left the issues that we've got as an army working with current policy because it just doesn't currently exist. The ability for us to experiment, I'm really keen to get your insights as to how we as a nation can allow not just our army, but the adoption of this technology at a far rapid rate than our, we can implement policy. Yeah, yeah, policy and law and regulation often lags behind innovation in the technology space. And issues like safety frameworks, getting those safety cases in place to ensure that we can have humans and robotic teams working together in a way that we don't have mishaps to our own personnel in training uh, exercises and other things are a critical part of enabling these technologies. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, how do we navigate the problem of there being people who may be involved in experiments involving autonomy who aren't able to give their consent to be part of it. Mm. Do you have an example of somebody who might not well, be able to give instance, it? Um, Tesla can sort of drive the person who's operating that car is, is very happy to be part of that experiment, but not necessarily the, the car they run into or the person they run over while they're mm. operating that essentially. Right, right. So there's an amazing book called um, Surveillance Capitalism. Um, which are by Shoshana Zupov. Surveillance capitalism is a hefty tome, good one for holding the door open. Um, you can glance through it, uh, but she speaks to the fact that we are all victim to corporations utilising artificial intelligence, gathering our data, doing a bunch of things where we're really not giving consent, really. We're clicking those privacy buttons because we're eager to get to the next thing in the app but we're not really consenting to the degree of surveillance and the degree of control and behavioural manipulation that is occurring to us day to day just in a civilian realm, let alone in institutional or organisational settings. Um, so, you know, how much consent do we give? How much can we fight back? What are the mechanisms for us in our jobs or in our lives as civilians um, to, to fight some of these systems that are increasingly dominating our lives? Um, it's a really big, Big question, but surveillance capitalism is a good book to jump into if you want to start in interrogating that space. Good, thank you. Uh, yeah. The other one, following that constant question, is about our mobile phones. So, how much confidence actually inform us in terms of, um, and obviously in terms of community, we have rooms where we can't take mobile phones because of the abilities that they have. But the companies, what are their, um, I guess, rules and regulations that are not us as a user um, on the information they're getting. I, I, I get that you can see some a big one for all of us, but uh, where's the where's the line between some of the area and the information that is uh, available to us? 
Yeah, there's not a lot of regulation on those mobile phone companies. They keep moving their headquarters outside of places that try to regulate them uh, in order to maintain and continue to do whatever they want to do. And Google was very recently called to task for surveilling users uh, much more than the users realised. Even when users clicked certain settings that suggested that they didn't want to be surveilled, Google was nevertheless keeping track of them and just not talking about it. Um, it's uh, really relevant when you saw COVID-19 happen last year and the Australian government tried to bring in the COVID tracing app and then Apple and Google got together and they decided, forget what the nations are doing, let's just combine our APIs and we, we know what everybody's up to, we'll, we'll control this situation. And just showed you that the power in the world today is not necessarily nation to nation and our own uh, situation is very vulnerable to uh, non-nation actors, which are corporations that are in control of our data. And in terms of inside the military context, personnel data is a, an ethical issue because data drives AI. And uh, since the new requirement that soldiers need to wear body cameras into combat, there's a real issue there in terms of the data that's captured. Now on the one side, could be good to keep track of what actually happens, some sort of objective record, for example. But there's another um, darker part of that, which is uh, if you're doing something and, you, and you're a soldier and uh, you've been tasked, you've been given um, your duty, you've been given a job to do, you're out in the field, it's being recorded. Now something goes badly uh, and, and what goes badly is on your body cam and get, gets shown around the televisions around Australia or around the world. Uh, you as an individual can become the moral crumple zone, can attract the moral blame for decisions for which you were not really that much uh, in control of. You were told to do a certain thing in a certain way and then your, the record of your actions and your behaviour become the locus of a nation's grief or concern. Uh, so the question is, where are the, where are the body cameras on those who are making the decisions who aren't on the field, right? Where are the body cams of the decision makers that are back in the piece over here behind the shadows, you know, behind the curtain? Uh, military lawyers over here, the people who are developing the technologies over there. There's so many different people who are responsible for the decisions to put personnel in circumstances where they might need to use force and there's not necessarily surveillance on what they're doing and how they're doing it. All right, any other questions or concerns? Yeah. Do you believe that international law and its morals should be the parameters which we operate as far as inventing new weapons to go and technologies are, or do you believe that we should strive to develop technologies and weapons outside the parameters of laws of our country without being Well, look, Australia has um, a commitment to uh, agreeing to the law, international legal to consider any new means or methods of warfare. Um, any individual decision to use any of those systems, um, commanders can make choices in the use of those weapons, for example, um, and they need to take the responsibility, the legal responsibility for the way they use them. They might decide in a particular situation to do something that uh, is ambiguous, that uh, might be um, not the same decision that another commander might make. Uh, and then they need to take responsibility for the choices they make. So most of what I advocate for is to ensure that the control mechanisms and the interface for decision making enables humans to have the appropriate level of cognitive engagement and understanding about what they're doing 
so that if they're asked after an event, well, why did you do that? They're not like, oh, get, there's, a red, there's a red line around it, so I press the button. That would be bad. That makes it seem like the person has no real understanding of the technology. But if they can stand to that decision and they can really say, look, I know that this system was trained on this data set and went through this test and evaluation process. It was specifically designed for this context of use and I had this amount of intelligence to suggest that if I didn't do that, this other thing would have happened. So this counterfactual story I can tell suggests a human who's really in a position of understanding and made a meaningful choice that they can stand by. Now you can still criticize that choice. You know, reasonable people could disagree whether that was the right action or not. But as long as a human can um, articulate and justify their decision, uh, then we've put them in a position where they can be moral agents. And if they have the freedom to choose, they can be moral agents in that situation. Because one of the good things about international law is that it empowers the humans to be responsible for decisions and does not put the locus of responsibility into the technologies. The technologies are tools because war has to be between humans. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but um, any other ethical concerns? Yeah. I was going to make a point that you think now that we're leading down the AI path, but it's actually going to start to perhaps increase some of the ethical concerns now that we're removing people from potentially executing weapons or so on and so forth. So it's like removing that human factor because a robot can now do it for us. Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question. I really do. And I think the, um, when should we get the humans out of the way? Because they generally do a bad job. And when do we really need to keep the humans there? Because without them, we lose our compass. Because there are many situations we put humans in where they're fatigued, they're emotional, they're scared. And we forgive humans when they act in those situations in the best that they could, in the conditions that they were in. But there are a lot of those situations where robots could be a better option for certain kinds of tasks. Not necessarily all tasks, but many tasks that humans are asked to do, robotics may do it and may do so in a more ethical and more legal way. I think autonomous navigation of ships, for example, could have potentially stopped the collision of uh, US naval ships uh, where you just had incredibly fatigued crews that were constantly being set, up, set uh, out on mission. Uh, by the DOD in the United States, the Navy petitioned again and again and again for more personnel, more help, or less missions. <laughs> Can we please not move the ships around so much? And they were not heard. And then there were collisions and there was incredible fatigue uh, and other damages to, the, to those crew. So yes, I think there are situations where putting AI and uh, autonomous systems into those uh, roles will be good for humanity and good for personnel and good for outcomes. Uh, but there are many situations where we probably need humans to be there making the meaning of the situation and making the choice uh, for particularly high ethical risk situations. Yeah. That's a great question. And I think it'll be a technology to technology and a context of use to context of use uh, answer. It's not gonna be one size fits all at all. Any other questions or risk? Yeah. Is it going to come down to whoever has the most batteries wins? I mean, you think about because there's off-the-shelf technologies, everyone's using the same sort of kit, and you think the battery is going to be the thing that makes the difference. Yeah, I mean, maybe. 
are our fights going to be largely around kinetic effects between physical things? Or are social influence campaigns uh, largely going to drive uh, something with a very small kinetic effect at the end? Right? So maybe we don't need to worry about batteries as long as we've mobilised a big information front. Yeah? Uh, but some worry about the proliferation of autonomous uh, technology to um, other road actors, uh, road <coughs> states or non-state actors uh, who don't have that accountability. Um, yep. An example being uh, there's an autonomous ambush uh, during the Libyan war, which yep. was uh, given to them by the, the Turkish. You're talking about the Kargu uh, drone, STM? Great example, yes. Yeah, so I was actually going to mention that. Um, so the Kargu drone, a Turkish drone, in a recent uh, UN report on Libya, said that this uh, Turkish autonomous drone acted autonomously uh, and fired upon retreating uh, Libyan, I think, whether the non-state, I think there was a non-state um, uh, force militia that was running away. Um, and the UN, uh, in the report, they didn't have strong evidence in terms of the level of autonomy, but they surmised, and they had a, in the annex, they had a, a picture of the internals of the drone, and they felt that it had been potentially the first act of a fully autonomous weapons system, and clearly acting contrary to um, uh, lawful behaviour in terms of firing on retreating troops. So even if it was controlled, it seemed like that was problematic in of itself. Um, recently, the CEO of STM actually just came out a couple of days ago and said, um, you know, we've been using these drones, you know, since 2018. They have uh, autonomous navigation. They have uh, AI that can be used to classify humans, animals and objects. Uh, but the human is supposed to um, zoom in on, on that classification in order to verify. And then the targeting choice is always the human to make. So that's their perspective. So they're trying to um, move backwards from any claims that there was a fully autonomous effect or fire, but all their marketing materials over the last few years has been emphasizing their autonomy features. Um, so you can get caught up in the uh, autonomy um, technology sort of excitement, and then they might get tripped up when the world is watching um, now. But that, that uh, robot at least, or that drone is, um, does have a manufacturer that we can identify. Um, so Frank Pascal has an, um, a new book on the, a new set of uh, laws of robotics. And one of his laws of robotics that he thinks is what we need to be ethical is that robots do need to identify themselves. They manufacture who is accountable for their use and operation. You can't deploy a robot without having people who are responsible for that deployment. But of course, I think that's a risk in the future world, just as in cyber. One of the big problems with cyber is uh, anonymity and people uh, making cyber attacks. Every country in the world is undertaking a kind of sneaky, uh, sneaky cyber operations uh, situation. And it seems likely that in the future, um, nations will continue to try and walk a path where they can avoid being seen as culpable for, for um, combined uh, cyber physical uh, incidents, for example, um, potentially you know, interrupting the firmware in a, a fleet of Teslas in a foreign country and having those autonomous cars turn into you know, colliding chaos devices and absolving themselves of blame for those. So I think that's one of the reasons why Ryan's point was so good in the beginning of his talk about the cyber perspective, because if you don't think about the ethics and law of cyber, you're missing out on the terrible problems of hacking and uh, interrupted comms and other things that are a critical fail for some of these robotic systems. This is great. I don't have to give any presentations. Just answering questions the whole time. Yeah. Um, if we accept the future of war, could we have the increased need to work on robots? Yeah. Yeah. 
is there a danger yeah. that we're going to essentially have uh, a creeping of what we, what we accept as a non-war situation where provided there's no humans being killed, we're going to be happy, happy with essentially the negative effects between states, but that's, that's still going to be within that gray zone and we're happy with that yeah, so there's um, an interesting, so uh, RAND ran a really interesting uh, wargaming environment. The, uh, they've got a board game called Hegemon or Hegemony. It's uh, based on, um, you know, big board game kind of environment. And they, and they did these really interesting plays where, for example, you had um, fully autonomous Chinese vessels. So they completely navigated themselves, completely in charge of their own decision making, but they had humans on board the ships. And then they had these other um, Japanese vessels and uh, those Japanese vessels uh, had full autonomy, but no humans on them. And then you had regular ships that had regular people on them and regular controls. And in terms of warfare behaviors, um, the retaliation for killing a robotic vessel, which has no human crew on it at all, so perhaps one of these warships that has no people on it, perhaps, uh, was kind of nothing. It was a nothing event. Oh, sorry. Um, but the Chinese vessel, fully autonomous, but with people on it, because people are there, that becomes a, an actual valuable thing. So people will always be probably the locus of the political interest. And if it's just robots killing robots out at sea or under the water, just one autonomous thing destroying the enemy's autonomous thing, that could be going on probably forever I mean, we are already constantly under cyber attack, right? And Australians do not feel like they're at war. But every day we're, we're being attacked. So I think we're already there. And that might move more and more to semi-platformed uh, environments out at sea where there's just no people. There's no news. If there's no people, there's no news. Um, really interesting question. Any others? All right, well, I'll, I'll uh, push on with a few things of my own, but by all means, um, interrupt, put up your hand if you've got anything to say and um, really welcome your feedback. I learn a lot from, from listening to the experts. Um, this is a painting by Catherine uh, Brimblecombe uh, Fox. She is uh, a painter. She's a, a researcher at UQ doing her PhD um, in uh, electromagnetic warfare. Uh, and uh, she also had a exhibition down at the Australian Defence College. So she's a really amazing painter. So if you're interested in a, um, art in relation to considering future technologies, she's a good artist to look at. Okay, so the sorts of ideas that I wanted to touch on in this presentation um, is this idea of ethics fast and slow. Really important if you've heard today's speakers talk about uh, fast tempo environments, for example, um, when things go wrong, uh, good, mad, bad, and cooked apples, uh, the ethics of individuals and the ethics of states, and uh, a method for ethical AI and defense. So ethics can be done really fast. This guy here, what a hero. It's the dad with the really fast maneuver. You can see that his hand is in front of his, let's say, son's face as a baseball bat launches in from the field. While everyone else in that picture is responding and looking after themselves, this is a guy with an eye on the prize of protecting someone he loves. Fantastic moment of reflexes in human behavior and the right thing to do. But ethics can also be done really slowly. There are all these times of reflection between or before 
we are put into situations with ethical risk. And we need to know how to maintain our own thoughtfulness in those situations. And I know the Cove has a reflective app to encourage constant consideration of what we do and how we do it outside of the tempo of, um, of operations. The thing about being ethical is um, sometimes it's really instinctive and we immediately go to the ethical thing. But we're also able to be trained. We're able to be taught how to care, how to heal, how to look after each other and how to do the right thing. It's not one or the other, it's both. And a lot of the time, particularly in conflict, it's not a case of being ethical or not ethical. It's sort of always gonna have elements of things that are not ethical. It's part of what makes war so terrible and so challenging and requiring the best of us as people is because it is not a situation where there is an easy option or, or an option which is um, without ethical risk or ethical harms. And that UN report on Libya, sure, there was the whole thing about the autonomous drone, but if you read the full report, the, the complexity, the complexity of the actors in that conflict and the difficulty of anyone's actions in terms of, was this the right action? Was this the right person for me to talk to, to trust? And this happened to uh, Major General Mick Ryan when he was over and he was um, having to negotiate uh, with you know, warlords on behalf of Australia and to try and make deals to protect Australian interests with people that may not be ethical, right, in many ways. And that, that is the nature of conflict. So ethics is always a place where uh, people can disagree and there's often bad news regardless of what you choose. So ethics under those conditions really requires us to have our strong moral compass as individuals and that ability to explain and justify what we do to ourselves, let alone to be in accordance with the values and uh, beliefs and mission that we've been given uh, by our nation. And recently the new leadership doctrine uh, was really very much focusing on ethics as a key part of what it is to be uh, a leader in the Australian Defence Force. So ethics is a key part of what Australia wants to achieve uh, but with an awareness, I think, that it has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. Main takeaway I'd say when it comes to ethics is, um, and I have a philosophy background, so I have a PhD in philosophy, and if you want to understand what you need for moral responsibility, I think it comes down to only three things. Um, people are morally responsible for decisions if they have a, morally relevant information, so if they know something about the situation which has moral concern, B, freedom to act. This is the most critical one. You can't be morally responsible for a decision if you're coerced into that decision, if you are not making that decision of your own free will, then you can't be morally responsible for that decision. And I'll get into some of the difficulties of that when it comes to new technologies. Um, and see the situation has ethical risk. So you know that there's moral factors going on, you have freedom to make your decision, and you're aware of the ethical risks in that decision-making process. When we come with new technologies, this is a, uh, the moral machines experiment. So with self-driving cars, millions of people did uh, trolley problems online about how do, we, how do we program the autonomous cars in the case of accidents. Do we choose to kill the pedestrians or do we get the car to veer off and crash into the ba barrier, save the pedestrians and kill those that are inside the car? This experiment was done in an attempt to try and codify 
how we should program autonomous vehicles to make ethical decisions at the time of an incident, sort of ahead of the incident itself. So it's taking a kind of slow ethics thinking process ahead of time, so that in the moment, the fast tempo environment, ethical decision making can be done fast. The problem with the experiment is that what they found globally was there's a huge variance in who should be saved on the presentation of the experimental design. So in uh, some East Asian countries, we wanted to save the grannies and kill the children, whereas in European and uh, American cultures, we were gonna save the children and kill the grannies. And if you're a German car manufacturer and you've got a couple of different car markets, you might be thinking, well, do we flick the kill granny switch when we send it over to America? We kill the children when we go to China? You know, this doesn't seem good. Now, Germany's response to these kinds of considerations is to basically say the ethical way to uh, program a self-driving car is that they cannot use any classificatory information about their environment in order to make a decision. Yeah? Can we revert back to pure yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolve, absolve, yeah. Um, well, so that's what the Germans decided, that the, the most ethical thing to do was basically uh, try not to hit people, uh, first of all. And a lot of engineers, when you present them trolley problems, they're just like, ugh, philosophers are so exhausting. Just don't hit things. <laughs> don't hit things. Easy, we don't need a complicated algorithm to tell us it's granny or a doctor or a child. Just don't hit things. Um, so yes, there are, there are defenses for being blind with regards to what happens and to do our best to be safe. And there are conditions under which uh, harms will occur, but they will be justified from the, from the ethical framework we put in place ahead of time. And I think that is why you need to build ethics and law into technologies as they are being developed and designed and tested and evaluated, because we all need to go on the journey together from the beginning of these technologies to figure out what we want the frameworks to be so that we don't spend our time making artificial intelligence that identifies the granny that we can then set the parameters of. Like that's the wrong path probably, right? So we don't even have to develop that uh, system. <laughs> we can turn that off. <coughs> that's a poor path. Uh, but you need to decide that ahead of the time or at least take it, disable that capability before you get it on the road. So what happens when things go wrong? So there's a book called Accountability for Killing, um, Moral Responsibility uh, for Collateral Damage in America Post-9-11 Wars. Uh, it's a, it's a well-written book, I highly recommend it. And in that, it talks about the apple approach. So for example, there are the good apples, which is what most personnel are supposed to be in the United States. But then there are the bad apple. So the bad apple view of war crimes is where the bad apples are fully autonomous moral agents who are no longer exercising discipline. They are failing to control their anger and other emotions, such as the desire for revenge. War unleashes our natural passions. Ultimately, it is the job of the soldiers themselves and of their commanders to keep control. And so the reasoning goes, these malevolent passions are unleashed in war if the soldier or commander loses control. So that's the, we're all mostly good, but there's a few bad apples who are morally responsible for war crimes. But the rest of us, we're okay. Then there's the mad apples. So when otherwise sane and law-abiding soldiers snap or deliberately commit crimes in combat, something has gone terribly wrong. In this case, mad apples commit atrocities where the moral agency of the mad apples is compromised and diminished by the stress of war. 
Thus, the assignment of actions that violate the laws of war depends on the soldier's capacity to make decisions and their freedom to act, their agency. So this mirrors quite closely what we see in normal legal frameworks where um, if you come out of, commit a crime, you are either held accountable and sent to jail, or if you plead that you're insane at the time, which a lot of um, men who kill their uh, wife's, uh, their lovers, no wait, they kill their wife, they kill their wife who had a lover, men in the United States tend to get off on a, on a temporary insanity charge, right? Because they have a kind of crime of passion mentality. They're not generally murderers, but when their wife is having an affair, that's pretty murder inducing. Uh, so the temporary insanity uh, situation or that war itself has created a madness that absolves an individual of choices they make under the stress of combat uh, is another way to manage the war crime situation. But I think there's a third kind of apple, or a fourth kind of apple. And it comes from working in human factors at DSTG for um, a, number, a couple of years. When you look at human factors analysis of the way people make decisions with technologies, um, you get this problem of information overload, you get problems of fatigue, you get problems of um, confusion, and also automation bias. And there's incredible studies of uh, operators being um, charged with drilling, for example, you know, off Norwegian oil rigs. And the problem for them sometimes is if the automation of that drill, that drill is really good and reliable and trustworthy, then the operators do rely upon it and they don't really critically interrogate it and they just sort of let it get on with what it's doing. And it turns out humans actually don't want as much control over systems as often we think they might. And there's a whole bunch of robotics experiments that show that when you give people robots and autonomous systems to do things, if those systems do a pretty good job, humans are relieved not to have to think about it. They're like, great, can you just get on with it? So that, um, that willingness to allow autonomy to do work for you is one risk factor when it comes to autonomous systems because people can happily allow autonomy. I know I have a very fancy camera, for example, and it has an auto mode and then it has all the manual settings. And when I was 15, I was a manual settings photography kind of person. But now I'm a mum with two kids, that autonomous, that auto mode is where I end up being almost all of the time. So that ten tendency to go with automation is a human factor. Alternatively, we can be so skeptical of our environment that we, we struggle to make informed decisions. Now, this is not madness. This is not badness. What I think it does is it makes us in this situation where I mentioned before being in the moral crumple zone, where we're put in information environments with these, with these systems, robotics and stuff, and maybe something goes wrong, and then we become the moral crumple zone. We become the locus of moral blame, but actually it's that we are part of systems where we don't have full uh, cognitive connection to what's going on. And I think that's the cooked apple scenario. So we need to be really careful we don't cook our apples. You know, otherwise uh, we risk as a nation uh, making people the blame where systems have not been adequately tested and evaluated in their anticipated context of use. And the Uber self-driving car incident is a really great case in the real world. You had a self-driving car in Arizona. You can see uh, a pedestrian walking their bicycle across the road and the algorithms misclassified that pedestrian 
as actually being an exiting vehicle. So it didn't notice that there was a person, they didn't notice there was an object on the road, but didn't realize it was a person or a pedestrian. Meanwhile, the test driver was on their phone, driving the car, not really driving the car, just on the phone. In the legal evaluation of the death of that pedestrian, Uber was not punished, the software engineers were not punished, the person that decided to lower the safety thresholds and the alerts on the car were not punished. The only person that had the culpability was that, um, the driver. So if we think about some of the ways that we might be operators in these situations, you want to say to yourself, well, if I'm in, if I'm in this vehicle and it's mostly autonomous and something goes wrong, will I end up being blamed for this technology? So the ethics fast and slow method really also stems from a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is very famously used in a lot of leadership courses to talk about different cognitive ways of interacting. So if we know that humans have biases and we know that sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, we should use that to guide the way we inter um, interact with, with artificial intelligence. We should make sure that we bring artificial intelligence in to augment our situational awareness, to improve our capacity to be morally responsible for our actions where appropriate. I think I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna probably pause there. Um, but before I go, let me just have one 30 seconds more. At the end of these slides, um, I have a couple of videos, but they're all available on, on the internet, so um, and everyone's had plenty of videos today, so I don't feel too bad. Uh, this is a report by uh, DSTG, a method for ethical AI and defense, and provides a framework and a set of pragmatic tools for um, managing ethical risks with the use of technologies. So if you are involved with any of these emerging technologies and you're wondering, do we have at least the first step towards developing a framework? Um, yes, we do. So please, um, the information is available publicly, uh, so you can just find it uh, through DSTG's website. Uh, you're welcome to take a brochure on your way out and uh, on the uh, Trusted Autonomous Systems Defence Cooperative Research Centre's website and on YouTube, we have videos um, that interrogate the method uh, that you're welcome to utilise as well as a full transcript of those videos.